I do love the idea of this tin man who it breaks his heart every time he does it, but he's just out there chopping the heads off of wolves and crying the whole time, but having to oil himself so he doesn't get rusted. So I'm just imagining this tin man who's like weeping, he's chopping heads off, you know, it's pretty So you're imagining dark. like the slasher version of, of like, this character? It's that... like grim, dark, fantasy, hero, badass version of the tin man. <laughs> this is really tortured, but has to do by his code of honor. Welcome, friends, to episode 255 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss L. Frank Baum's 1900 novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Welcome, listeners, to season seven of the Ink to Film podcast. And welcome, James, to 2023. How'd your New Year's go? It was good. It was good. Saw some family, saw some friends. Took some time away from work, took some time away from the podcast, so re- feeling recharged. I had a good one, too. I went to a couple parties. Um, I did have a weird thing happen, which I guess I'll share on, on the podcast, because why not? Um, I was... So we were at a party about 30 minutes before the ball is about to drop, or whatever it is on the West Coast. It's not really a ball drop on the West Coast. <laughs> My wife gets a migraine. So I'm like, all right, we're just going to go home. Like, it hits her pretty hard. So we leave and like everyone's like, what the hell? You know, it's 30 minutes till midnight and when we, we, we dip out, mm-hmm. we get home, we're riding up the elevator, get to our floor. I get my keys out of my pocket so that I can like go and open the door for her. And um, I just like gesture like I'm like, all right, let's go, you know, and the door opens up and the keys fly out of my hand, hit the ground. And like it's like oh, slow no. motion. I watch no. them slide and go right down the crack between the elevator and the floor you're I'm about, we're about to get off on oh my gosh never I, we were but we were just we were just staring at it because like neither of us wanted to move because like you don't want to try and lunge because you feel like you're gonna like kick it and make it worse you know what i mean so you're just hoping it's not gonna actually happen and it did right down the crack so i have not had keys now for a few weeks we're waiting until uh the elevator like company is going to come out next month and where they're, they're going to retrieve it for us. It would have cost us $400 to have them come out specially just to get the keys for, for us. Wow. So I was like, well. Holiday rates, right? Yeah, I don't know. I was like, I was like I'll just wait until they're already here. <laughs> what percentage of you felt like you should crawl into the duct and, and do like a John McClane-esque <laughs> yeah, like, Hold on a second. Let me. I've done this before. <laughs> Climb up the top. <laughs> yeah, that's what I should have done. Uh, but instead, no, I'm just waiting. Um, anyway, so that was a, a very interesting end of 2022. <laughs> it was like, and then we walked in, we're like, oh, happy new year. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was wild, but here we are new season. I wanted to start the year off with a big one that had been on our radar for a long time. And, uh, the wizard of Oz is one we've been talking about. And you always tell me like, oh, that's a big one. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research that's going to have to go into it. And um, I thought like, okay, well, I'll give I'll give you a few weeks by starting the season off with it. We actually put it up for a a vote with a few others. And this is what people voted for. But I figured it was a good time to do it. Um, What I didn't expect was how much there was going to be about the book when I was researching that. And the author, um, L. Frank Baum, who wrote it, 
Um, there's a lot. So it's going to be big I, on both. And, and I'm glad that we decided to do this in two separate episodes because it totally deserves it. We're going to do this episode fully on the book. Um, and then next week we'll be solely focused on the you know iconic film. But I wanted to ask you like what your relationship is and your experience is with The Wizard of Oz as a property. One of the earliest movies that I can remember watching for sure. I saw it really early when I was a kid and watched it maybe more times than almost any other movie growing oh, up. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like on one of those VHS. movies for you? Yeah, I watched it endlessly. And it's funny, like, I don't even think of it as a fantasy story, really. It feels like this, like, like of course it is. Uh, it feels like this epic. It feels like a story that's always existed. It feels like the Odyssey or something like that. It's like some ancient literature. Kind of a modern version of that, yeah. So something about watching it and not understanding the transition from black and white film to Technicolor and a lot of those other things where I just was a kid just watching a magical movie. Yeah, I have super fond memories of it. And it, it's it, it's hard for me to even think of it as a movie. I don't know. It's more of this like <laughs> ingrained experience that I feel like everyone has. Right. Uh, Certainly a piece of Americana at this point. Sure. And when we went to read it, which I hadn't done before, it felt like... I'm like, of course, this is based off some fantasy novel that's taking from the the tropes and and the the trappings of a fantasy story, and they just Hollywoodified it in the like you know the 30s or whatever it was when it came out. 39. For, yeah, and in a time where I think fantasy wasn't, especially on the on the the big screen, the silver screen, if you will, it wasn't super accessible. I don't think a lot of people were engaging with fantasy and and films at least. And yeah. Definitely not. It's a it's a really unique film and story in general because of when it came out. So for me, I uh, I don't think I saw this until I was in school. I don't remember ever watching it as like a young child, um, but I mean pretty young in school, I guess. <laughs> but it was one of those like school movies. Uh, the other one for me is uh, uh, Willy Wonka Footloose. and Chocolate Factory. <laughs> um, what do you say, Footloose? Footloose. <laughs> you didn't have that experience. No, I never watched Footloose. I don't think I've ever seen Footloose. Really? Yeah. That, I don't know. There's a, there's a few. No, it was Willy Wonka, the Chocolate Factory, and Wizard of Oz were like the two movies that like whenever you had a sub, they'd bring out the, the TV, they'd roll it into the room, and they'd pull this one on. And so I, the most, I, I've seen it so many different times in so many different ways over the years. I think I've seen it projected. You know, sometimes you have it to where you could actually project a movie in some classes. Um, so I, I've seen it in a lot of different ways, but I had never read the book. Um, and it was definitely an interesting experience, but it always felt like a school movie to me, like caught up in, caught up in, you know, the classroom. Um, and I think we did talk about it some and like it's, it's con historical context, but I, I don't remember a lot about it. I've always heard there's like some wild backstory for certain things that went on with the filming of it. So I'd be interested to revisit that. I guess you were probably too, maybe a little older than, than I was when I saw it, but the there was a couple of distinct scenes that terrified me as a kid. Mm. Now, see, no, it didn't, because I was in school when I watched it. I was surrounded. I was like goofing off, half watching. I've seen it so many times I have seen it. No, I know. I never being, remember being afraid of anything in this movie. <laughs> the cyclone scene mm. where the witches flying around and all this yeah. great that terrified me. And then the monkeys, the flying monkeys sure. really, really messed me up. But uh, this is like, you know, we talked about this a little bit with like never ending story where when you're really young, these certain things that aren't very aren't very scary, just they, they do a good job of making them really terrifying to a kid, I guess. And that those, like, I look at them now and I'm sure they're extremely quaint, but I remember them like making an impact on me and being like, wow, <laughs> I'm really afraid of cyclones and flying monkeys now. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I think let's, let's 
shift gears and focus on this book since that's what this episode's going to be about. If you haven't listened before, you know, welcome. Uh, we're going to talk about the the book exclusively. We're going to give it its due. We're going to talk about the author. We're going to talk about some behind the scenes, like what went into writing it, its publication history, that kind of stuff. Then we'll shift into discussing the plot chronologically fairly quickly, and we'll give our reaction to it and analysis um, from a writer's point of view and from a filmmaker's point of view. And then we'll do the same next week for the film itself. Um, and then, of course, making comparisons uh, to the book that we're going to cover this week. 1900, huh? That's what you 1900, said. 1900, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to kind of put that in context because that's just like a weird number. And I'm like, oh, man, what is what is life like in the 1900s? Well, first off, I was looking at L. Frank Baum. He was born in 1856. So he grew up during the Civil War. Like the Civil War ended when he was 10. So he would have been very young. Um, but, you know, he lived through um, a lot of the expansion. I was reading that like uh, Toledo had a higher population than Los Angeles in 1900. So like people were still in the process of sort of moving out west. There was only like 8,000 cars in the country and none west of the, the Mississippi River, like zero. Wow. Um, so, he, you know, this is the time in which he's writing this, right? Like, the, you know, the Wright brothers hadn't done their first flight yet. Like, this is like so long ago, it's hard to really even wrap my head around. Um, and that's going to be reflected in some of the stuff we hear about him. So uh, let's talk about the man first. Lyman Frank Baum, um, he ended up going by Frank because he just didn't write, like the name Lyman, was an American author best known for his children's books, particularly The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and its sequels. He wrote 14 novels in the Oz series, plus 41 other novels, not including four lost unpublished novels, 83 short stories, over 200 poems, and at least 42 scripts. So as I said before, he was born in 1856 in New York. He enjoyed a comfortable upbringing as a son of a barrel factory owner who also had some success in the oil business. He would begin his education with tutors at home in his early years, um, at the age of 12, he went to the Peekskill Military Academy, but he left school after a health crisis two years later, apparently suffering some type of heart condition. Um, I, I read that it was while being disciplined for daydreaming. Um, he was kind of a sickly child. He would daydream a lot. He was that kind of guy, kind of kid, like head in the you clouds. Know, staring out the window, head in the clouds. Um, apparently, he loved writing from a very early age. He was always writing and telling stories. Um, he never ended up earning a high school degree, and he spent his early adulthood exploring his interest in acting and writing for the stage. So he's super into the stage. Uh, I thought that was an interesting thing, considering like the film that gets made is so important to American history, right? So as a child, Baum frequently had nightmares of a scarecrow pursuing him across a field. Moments before the scarecrow's ragged hay fingers nearly gripped his neck, it would fall apart before his eyes. Decades later, he would use this tormentor in his novel as the scarecrow. I just thought that was a cool little note because we're always curious like where these ideas come from. So as a young man, um, he got well known in the community for his 4th of July rocket displays. He would make rockets and set them off. And then he also was well known and it became a family tradition that he would dress up like Santa Claus. And then it sounds like he would like put up a, um, a sheet so that I guess you would only see the silhouette of him while he was like decorating the tree and he would narrate that as Santa Claus for the rest of his family. Okay, performer. He would, like, gather around. Right, kind of yeah. Wizard of Oz, right? Like, the you know, sure. literally the wizard, right? Like, behind it, behind the sheet. Um, there's so many little bits that seem to have made it into the book that, you know, which I'll continue to get into. He had a, a lifetime infatuation with theater. 
Um, he worked for several different ones. He had one where he seemed like he got scammed by them and it really um, set him back. They, uh, it sounds like they convinced him to buy a bunch of new costumes for the entire production on promises that he would eventually get the lead role, which of course never happened. So he ended up just bankrolling a bunch of new costuming because it sounds like he did have money because he came from this like fairly wealthy upbringing. Um, but he really wanted to do this, right? And he would he would be writing screenplays, tra- acting. Um, on November 9th, 1882, he would marry Maud Gage, who was the daughter of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was a famous women's suffrage and feminist activist. Now, the reason I bring that up is I, he would go on to write in newspapers and he would write all these books and he became like a pretty well-known figure. And he did have some... I mean, they would be quaint today to look at him, but he had some feminist kind of leanings in his books. He had um, nations where there were women warriors. He had women in power. Um, I, I, I read a couple different examples of it that are escaping me, but he had some of this in his books. And it seems like he was like fairly progressive in that way, um, even though he was born Methodist and was a pretty devoutly Christian man. Um you say even though these things are not incompatible, but we often they often seem like they are, I guess. But they're not. It's good to remember that. Um, and you know, this is a different time period. I thought that was all interesting, right? And I'm like, I'm like liking this guy. I'm like, I like this. You know, he's, he's, he he starts writing fantasy too, and he really where the Wizard of Oz came from was he was looking at these old Brothers Grimm fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen. Like we've talked about these old fairy tales, right? And he was like, they're so violent <laughs> and they're so dark. And they're really not that great for children. And so he thought that children's books should be less violent. And so he started rewriting them. And I think his first book was like a Mother Goose style retelling in which it was like versions of older tales, but with some of the like darker bits kind of omitted or changed. And so sometimes people look at him as like the start of the movement to um, sort of sanitize a lot of the old tales that were told to children because a lot of the old tales were told to scare children specifically like listen to your parents or you'll get your legs cut off or whatever you know it was always something like really dark right and he he wanted to change that and his idea was that children should just be children they should just have fun they should be reading books that have fun illustrations he believed that like all children's books should have illustrations and they shouldn't have morality like hitting them over the head and so he was also really inspired by Lewis Carroll, I was, I was reading, and uh, Alice in Wonderland. Because so I was like, where does this stuff come from? Like, okay, Alice in Wonderland, I can see that, like, that, I can see that connection for sure. It's funny to me, though, because I don't see, the, that's, that's my problem with the story is it's so ingrained and it feels so much like one of the first in this style that I don't think of it having a lot of, like, contemporary fantasy alongside it, but clearly in the... I think in the in the book community there was. Well, and a lot of it was also just he wanted to write a fairy tale. So story and mine had an introduction where he even talked about that as his like in, interests in um fairy tales and how he wanted to change them and stuff. And he was talking about the children of today, which I thought was funny because it was written in 1900. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talking about the children of today. I was like, "Oh, that's good." But then I get to this part. So so as much as I'm liking this guy and I'm I'm, I'm feeling for him, this part this part grossed me out. Um he so he would write for his newspaper, right? And he would publish a uh, article in which he called for the extermination of na- all Native Americans. He this was like right after Wounded Knee happened, and he was basically said they're all savages, and it would be best for them and for everybody if they were just wiped out. 
And Jesus some people Christ. tried to argue that this was satire, um, but he doubled down. And I think like a few years later wrote another piece in which he just basically said the same thing. Um, what's weird is he had family members who were like advocates for the, like Native Americans. And he had um, his mother-in-law, Matilda Gage, uh, the famous suffragist uh, like I talked about, um, was initiated into the Wolf Clan and admitted to the Iroquois Council of Matrons and recognized for her outspoken respect and sympathy for Native American people. So, you know, he had people with his own family were probably not too happy about this. So as much as we want to give him credit for his like sort of feminist leanings and stuff, it's like, yeah, he also was advocating for genocide. So that's not great. Um, Apparently, even some of his ancestors have have like apologized to Native American people on on his behalf, you know, I mean, gratefully so if you uh, any goodwill that this person like had built up with a story or anything like that. Now I'm just, that's, that person's a garbage person, you know? That- well, I mean, I think it's important to remember, like, I mean, we see this all the time today. Like people get caught up in the politics of their lives. And this was a time in which America was, tr- was expanding into areas that were controlled by native Americans. And we clearly see now how evil this was and how it was stealing you know, land and, you know, the genocide that was going on. But, you know, clearly he was convinced by sort of the racist dialogue and racist um, propaganda of the time. And unfortunately, uh, it seemed like he aligned with it and, and, and believed yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a moral compass that it doesn't matter the generation that you feel like that's an evil thing. You, yeah. You know, you would think. It, clearly, he didn't see them as people from like the, from the writings. Like he really just saw them as, you know, savage, just not not people it's messed up man um definitely messed up so like it's you know anytime we're covering something that's this old like i feel like there tends to be something like this if i start digging into it there's some skeleton in there and i'm like oh no i was starting to like you frank Baum. he would go on to like continue to write this series he would try and write other books in different fantasy lands but none of them were successful and children would write to him wanting more oz stories and he became extremely well known for this series um and think about the time period we're talking about right there was like tens of thousands of copies sold i think by the time the um the movie came out it was in the millions um it was it was just incredibly popular as he was dying in 1919 um he suffered a stroke he slipped into a coma and uh his last words spoken to his wife during a brief period of lucidity was now we can cross the shifting sands and the Shifting Sands was literally the name of the desert that surrounds the Land of Oz. Mm-hmm. So it shows me that to him, he lived so much in this world and he thought about it so much that it really was like heaven to him, right? Like it was it was his concept of heaven. And so much so that on his deathbed, that's what he's talking about, right? It's just it's just interesting, right? Like he, he, he And like I said, he tried to write this other stuff, but he couldn't find success anywhere else. So he kept coming back to it. It became the like the defining thing of his life, um, and then notably, yeah, he died twenty years before the film adaptation. Um, however, that's not to say that there weren't any adaptations. There were some stage productions of The Wizard of Oz that came out. One of them is early as nineteen o two, so two years after it was published, uh, there was a stage production. But I thought this was kind of this was kind of fun. Um, it was a more adult version of the story. That it replaced uh, the Toto with Imogene the cow and uh, Trixie Trifle, who was a waitress, and Pastoria, a streetcar operator, were added as fellow cyclone victims to Dorothy. Um, the Wicked Witch was in- eliminated entirely from the plot, 
and it was about four friends who were allied in an attempt to usurp the wizard who hunted them as traitors. So it is, this was a very different version. It was adults. They were fighting against a wizard. There was no wicked witch. You know, there's a cow instead of a dog. <laughs> um, again, so, uh, but he had very little, um, seems like he had little control over this. And um, he, in, in, it does seem like he was actually unhappy with a lot of the changes that were made. There were also explicit references to politics of the time, including President Roosevelt, Senator Mark Hanna, um, oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, um, that kind of stuff, right? So it was like very like, oh, we're going to cut, you know, take shots at a lot of political figures at the time. Mm-hmm. Sounds entirely different to me. But I mean, it's got some pretty wild posters. You see like the Tin Man and he looks kind of similar to how he ended up looking in the movie in the posters. You could see a lot of the the imagery that they would wind up using for the film, I think, came from these early stage productions. It had been done a few times, you know, and they ended up using similar looking things. I mean, there's so many little details, but I just really can't get into all of them. There's a lot of stuff around, like, the, the places he lived. There's a theme park now that, you know, tries to reference uh, a lot of the stuff. He, at one point, started telling people that he had bought an island that he wanted to make into the Land of Oz. And it was going to be a theme park for children only. And it was going to be run by children only. And he was going to be the only <laughs> adult there. Which sounds really weird. Oh, my God. Um, there, it's, like, a bunch of wild shit. But then there was, like, no evidence that this ever happened. But apparently he talked – he, like, said it a lot. But there's, like, no evidence that this island even existed, much less that he bought it. Um, very strange, right? Um, but, I mean, he, he, you know, he was – rich uh, he, this made him very wealthy eventually and he you know he lived all over the country and, and and during this time period to be kind of a superstar children's book author that's incredibly rare um so it's just a fascinating life to think about um it's really what i came away with it you know for better and worse everything you're telling me about this person sounds like it's building this like myth of a person who was going on to to write this specific fantasy story that would change the world forever, and you know, I, I it sounds like it, the the book had similar impact to what the film had. Um, I think the film was just it just I mean, had ultimately the film ended up being bigger. I mean, clearly, but it was big. Like I don't want to I don't want to overshine like how big it was for the time. I mean, obviously, like it still is his story. It just got you know the version the medium that we've encountered it now is different. And the story itself, too, is like he doesn't really reinvent the wheel along the way to, to I feel like there must have been, you know, he's referencing some of these these uh, Brothers Grimm novels and stories that existed. And I guess in, in the thing that he re- did reinvent is what you're talking about is that that sanitizing it and making it very accessible, I guess, to all audiences. Although it's interesting because there was some pretty violent stuff that happens in this book, which we'll talk about. Uh, You know, apparently that was a thing in his early books, but then like as his books went on, there was less and less violence. So he wanted to create this world and I'm just imagining a world where you have like cyclones and flying monkeys that (laughs) that kids are running the show. And I mean, that sounds pretty terrifying. Well, I'm thinking about Gimli, the fucking Tin Man, chopping heads off and stuff. There's some wild violence actually in this book. It's not like graphically described, but it does happen. Um, But again, he moved away from it in later books. Um, The also thing he wanted to admit was like he he wanted to not talk about dwarves and genies and like the more traditional fantasy uh, characters, I guess. And he instead wanted to um, invent his own. So we had the munchkins. Okay, great. You went away from dwarves and munchkins. All right. (laughs) Um, But he did have some, you know, to give him credit, he had some new groups and new peoples. Um, He had these little porcelain people we'll talk about, um, all these things. He did also want to make it a little bit more American and familiar for American children. 
So that's why there was scarecrows and like planes and then, you know, she was from Kansas rather than a lot of the English oriented uh, children's stories that we were that were still popular. Maybe that's another reason why it hit really hard, because that is kind of unique. I can't think of another fantasy story that does center around like and it's not just America. It's like that era of America, like like railroad building railroads, manifest destiny kind of. If you, I guess that was like a bit before, but you know what I mean? Like they're going west and, and like... No, it's caught up in all of that, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's all baked into the story in a way that, like you said, it's traditionally European or or maybe something else. Um, it's interesting because there's been so much critical analysis done of this story in general, The Wizard of Oz. He basically denied it. He would say like, no, there's no ulterior motives. Where have I heard that before? It seems like there was, um, but it, he just, he wanted his stories to just be for children. They're not metaphors. They're not. He even says like he didn't want morality lessons, but I feel like there's absolutely morality lessons. If you're writing a children's novel, it's inherently a, a morality tale. Seems right? like it, but I guess yeah. this was less heavy-handed, at least, than a lot of the other ones he was seeing. Well, at the time. so that's a good point. What What do you take away with this story? Like, what was his main focus on writing this story, other than entertainment of children? I felt like a lot of the story was partially the idea of like don't judge a book by its cover, but more so you can't trust anybody. <laughs> so I kept getting this vibe of like everybody's got ulterior motives and they have like <laughs> hidden personas and things that, that they don't want you to see. And I'm like, what's the lesson here for a, ch- a child reading this is like, don't trust these people. Don't trust adults and authority figures and, yeah. and these people and everybody's kind of, I, I, although the, the flip to that, I guess, is that people don't even understand like the depth of themselves kind of like you get the, all of our main characters kind of like, have all the capacity to do the things that they want to already. So that's kind of a fun story for children to read. Like, oh, I'm capable of anything, even though it may be frightening or... I mean, I think he knew this was for children and it needed to have some morality for it or like parents to want it to be something their children read. Um, And yeah, I think you're picking up on some things. I think there's also just like appearances can be deceiving, don't believe your eyes all the time. the things that people think they don't have, sometimes they do have and they just don't realize it. Um, that, that that seemed to be a recurring theme. Um, we'll get into that. Yeah, let's get into that, I guess, here in a second when we get into the summary. But before we leave him behind, um, according to his son, Harry, the Tin Woodman was born from Baum's attraction to window displays. He wished to make something captivating for the window displays, so he used an eclectic assortment of scraps to craft a striking figure. From a wash boiler, he made a, a body. From bolted stovepipes, he made arms and legs. And from the bottom of a saucepan, he made a face. Bomb then placed the funnel hat on the figure, which ultimately became the Tin Woodman. So this might have been in his... He had a store. It's interesting, right? There's all these little things that went together. He wrote a story in 1890 about a woman who um, would give out green goggles to uh, his horses, which would cause them to believe that the wood chips they were eating were pieces of grass. And apparently that was like the inspiration for what would go on with the Emerald City. Yeah. Why are you feeding wood chips to, to horses? I don't know. It was in the story. <laughs> I don't know. Probably because there wasn't enough grass or something. This is also a time of a lot of like, um, I think, economic depression. Or, yeah, dust bowl kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think so. I'm, I'm not like great with like exactly when everything happened in American history, but... I mean, there was lots of different times where people were really struggling. The average, you know, American was not making a lot of money, even though he had a decent amount. It was, you know, there was a lot of a hardship. And I'm sure he like, went up and down as he, like, struggled with work and, and opening a store a store that ended up going under. That store did not last very long. It, had to, it went under. So, you know, it's not like everything he did was this great success. 
All right, let's move into plot talk. If you're ready, I have uh, four short paragraphs and I'll read one. We'll, re- we'll talk about what happened in that section and then move on. So Dorothy is a young girl who lives in a one-room house in Kansas with careworn Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. The joy of her life is her dog, Toto. A sudden cyclone strikes, and by the time Dorothy catches Toto, she is unable to reach the storm cellar. They are still in the house when the cyclone carries it away for a long journey. When at last the house lands, Dorothy finds that she is in a beautiful land inhabited by very short, strangely dressed people. The Witch of the North informs her that she is in the land of the Munchkins, who are grateful for her for having killed the Wicked Witch of the East, the house having landed on the Witch, thus freeing them. The Witch of the North gives Dorothy the silver shoes of the dead witch and advises her to go to the City of Emeralds to see the great wizard Oz, who might help her to return to Kansas. The witch sends Dorothy off along a yellow brick road with a magical kiss to protect her from harm. All right, let's start there. That's the setup of the story. And I was pretty taken with how similar this was like, okay, this is just right. Just like the movie in almost every way. I think the, the, the um, slippers uh, shoes being silver instead of Ruby is a pretty big difference. Um, but a lot of this other stuff was pretty similar. Um, I think Dorothy feels younger to me here, like a, like more of a truly little girl than we get um, in, in the movie where it's like, I don't know. I actually, I guess I don't know. Was it Judy Garland? I don't know what her age was. Yeah. I, I mean, um, she was clearly like she was young. teenage to, to yeah. a ad, uh, young adult, but this is a child. This is a child, like eight yeah. eight years old, something like that. Right. Like very, very young. Which just changed things. And, and um, you mentioned one of the things that stood out to me a lot that I that I tracked through a lot of this reading. And it, it, it flagged in my mind because the slippers were silver rather than ruby. And it's theor- it's color theory throughout and, and what he's do- doing with color and the way that he's saying, you know, these characters have a lot of like green with the Emerald City. These characters, their primary color is red. And the way that that's Talked like... Talked about how blue is popular in this land and she has the blue mm-hmm. and white dress, which actually I think does make it into the movie. Color theory, there's, there's a lot that, of thought that goes into it. And when you get into like composition and cinematography in general, you think about like the way that c- colors complement themselves, but there's certain colors mean certain things. And so seeing like our main character wearing blue... Uh, certain characters wearing red, certain characters being associated with with green, and then the yellow brick road and what yellow represents. I, I just found, you know, it's a shorthand for even if you aren't connected to that in any way, the colors bring about certain emotions, and I think kids can latch onto that too. And I just thought that was a really smart detail that I never really thought about with The Wizard of Oz before, which it's bl- so blatantly obvious to me now, but it's just one of those little details I never, never really thought to dig into. Yeah. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was the construction of this story is it's it's kind of fascinating because Dorothy accidentally does a lot of stuff in this book. She accidentally kills one of the biggest villains in this entire land. Um, she is then sort of hero worshipped for it, even though she did it by accident. Um, she kind of just stumbles into a lot of stuff. She gets these um, series of, of people who join her party, which we're about to talk about. And her whole story is sort of a one of just kind of being caught up in an adventure. And I think it that's sort of fun for a kid. And it's almost the opposite in some ways of like what we're what we're taught with agency for characters and like being the driving force of the plot, not letting the plot drive you. Like Dorothy is totally caught like I mean like perfectly. She gets caught up in a cyclone and transported somewhere, and then the whole plot carries her along, makes her to the central figure, but she doesn't have to make a lot of choices. 
it, it makes me think about style and and cert, how certain styles of stories come in and out of style and and this felt like this feels like something that the main character the main draw to this story isn't necessarily like living you're living vicariously through the main character but it's more about the world yeah oz is where you're going also think about being a kid in 1900s America mm-hmm. and reading a story about this, like this is before Lord of the Rings, before all the stuff you've seen, like, and then there's Oz and then there's the idea that a cyclone could just come to your house and take you there. And you think about Kansas and cyclones, obviously, yeah. like people who live in that area, they're thinking about that often. Yeah. I wonder if anybody like, anybody ever like went into a cyclone because of this. That would yeah. be, that'd be dark. <laughs> that'd be pretty uh, dark. <laughs> but it might, it might have Somewhere <laughs> Just to get into the cyclone. Um, you know, and, and I can just see how this would like like blow you away as a kid, right? Like this is like your for probably the first and only fantasy thing you've ever read, and it's it's so cool, so interesting. That's what that's, and that's kind of what I mean is like the main character in this case is kind of the world. Like you're getting to see this fantasy world yeah, like yeah. nothing you've seen before. It's target audience, right? Like it's it's the 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 child who's reading this can totally see themselves in, in Dorothy's silver shoes. All right, so on the long journey to the Emerald City, Dorothy and Toto are joined by the Scarecrow, who wishes he had brains, Tin Woodman, who longs for a heart, and the Cowardly Lion, who seeks courage. They face many trials along their route, but they overcome them all, often because of the Scarecrow's good sense, the Tin Woodman's kindness, and the bravery of the Cowardly Lion. At last, they reach this Emerald City, where the Guardian of the Gates outfits them in green lensed glasses and leads them to the Palace of Oz. Oz tells them that no favors will be granted until the Wicked Witch of the West has been killed. All right, so this covers like a good chunk of the book here. Let's talk about the introduction of each of our characters. To set this up too, I, I remember when we were covering The Hobbit and we were talking about how each chapter feels like an individual story that you can tell to a child at bedtime kind of thing. Definitely. This like very that, much yeah. felt like this as well. And and maybe that's just has to do with the fairy tale of a certain era has mm. that. But I like it for that. And then, I don't know, to my modern sensibilities, it feels almost like a video game, right? Like you're, <laughs> you, you progress, you're progressing through these like... They definitely weren't thinking about that in 1900. <laughs> right, yeah. You're progressing through and, and you're almost like resetting up the story each time. You're like, okay, so... Dorothy's- well, it's because video games are following old storytelling tropes and, and structures, right? Like it's, a, you know, ultimately this is what... Joseph Campbell's hero's journey a little bit, right? Like Dorothy goes and where does she wind up at the end? Right back at home. She's changed now. She's happier. Yeah. Having, having had her adventure. And I guess I'm specifically talking about like the beginning, middle and end structure of each chapter on its own. So there's like, sure. you know, set up. They do. I agree. They do kind of stand alone. Like I could imagine reading a chapter to a kid before bed each night and it would feel like an installment in the adventures of Dorothy and Oz. There's the rising action. They overcome the obstacle, the, you know, the climax. And it's just it's got all that built built into each chapter. And that kind of makes it very readable too. you yeah. can keep going. Um, Which I wanted to ask you, like, I guess I never really asked you, like, how did you feel about this book in general? Like, I know we're not the target age category, but um, I always imagine, like, if I had a kid, was this something I'd want to read to them? And and where does it and like, how did it stack up to my expectations for what kind of book it was going to be with everything I knew about it? How did you feel about it? I guess I would say, yeah, I would I would like to read it to a child or something like that. It's definitely not necessarily for me. I think I, you can see a lot of influence there, but it didn't enthrall me to the point that I was like, oh, I'm so excited to continue on. It was mercifully very short, which which if this is extended out to like a, you know, 
uh, I don't know how long, how page wise, this is a couple hundred pages or something. If this was extended out to like a thousand pages, that would, you know, that could, that could oversay its welcome pretty easily. I'm sure we'd get a lot more detail, but I liked the, the ways that I could kind of try to revert back to being a child and think like, what would I think even as like a kid in the nineties, like, what would I, what would I feel reading this? I bet if I, if this was not a book that my mother read to me, my mother read to me a lot when I was young and she read like Chronicles of Narnia and Redwall and a lot of different series that were influential, but this wasn't one of them, but I think this would have fit. I think this would have been one that we would have enjoyed, especially when I was very young. Um, I think I would have enjoyed this and especially it would have been interesting if I had, like, if she had read this to me before I'd seen the movie, Yeah, like, I wish that had happened, you know, it would have been cool. So, and that brings up a good point. I guess one of my one of the main ways that I was enjoying consuming this is being really interested in where the movie decided to deviate and like the things that are original to the story that didn't necessarily make the cut. Um, I found a lot of enjoyment in that and kind of yeah, seeing, like, oh, this is the true version of the story. Okay, it's a hi- reading it as a historian almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, sure. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it, um, it was better than I thought. It held up better. Um, very readable. So, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I listened to the audio book for most of this. I do have the physical copy up here. Um, but uh, I, I read most of this by listening to it while I was, like, walking the dogs and stuff. And Anne Hathaway was the narrator for it. Oh, wow. And um, she was great. She did all these fun voices for all the different characters. Like, I even had a few of them that I wrote down because they were so funny. Um, so I thought she did a great job. And, like, Anne Hathaway, like, that's a heavy hitter for an audiobook narrator. <laughs> really random because I can't think of, a, like, a property. Was she involved with, like, Wicked or something? or like? Yeah, something? I don't know. I don't know. That's Interesting. a good question. Um, cool, nonetheless. Very cool. So Scarecrow, the guy wants brains. And immediately we see, like, he says, I was born the day before yesterday. Which I love that line, right? And he says, I actually wrote down a line here that I thought it was really interesting. He said, it's such an uncomfortable feeling to know one is a fool. Um, And of course, that shows a level of wisdom, right? Like to know one's own limitations is wisdom itself. And I think um, there's a reason I've I've read that a lot of people saw like Buddhist teachings in, in his work and like certain certain spiritual lessons. Um, and apparently, even though he was Christian, that reminds me, um, he didn't send his, his send his children to um, like a Christian school, uh, like a primary school. He instead sent them to one for ethics that was like an ethic school. It was interesting, like an ethic morality school, but it was apart from religion. It was not associated with religion, um, which is fascinating, right? So like, it seems like, you know, maybe he wasn't like, the most devout. I don't know. <laughs> and it, it wasn't like it wasn't like this was a Christian allegory. I never felt that. No. Right. I would never like, well, this is clearly Jesus and we're telling the story. You know, like that was yeah. not a thing. In this Which book. you do get often with a lot of fantasy stories. Like yeah. or- talk about Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe. <laughs> and also like almost like early sci fi thoughts I was having as he was talking about how he's like, oh, I don't feel pain. You know, I'm stuffed. Like he could just laugh and he falls <laughs> over and like. My body's, you know, it's, it's different than yours. Same thing when the Tin Man comes up, right? Like the way yeah. these bodies are different than flesh. And so it, you're getting like early AI. Yeah, but also. What does it mean to be alive? But just, I mean, but think about this is written so long ago. And like the, sure. he's thinking about what it would be like to have a body that's not made of flesh. Like that's, it's really interesting stuff to be, to be going on there. And I thought it was really clever. And one of the reasons why that I think the story has lasted so long and has intrigued so many people. Um, and then again, we get the Tin Woodmen, which. He's pretty different. I don't know. He's similar, but pretty different. Um, he has this whole story he tells, which is pretty dark, <laughs> about how he's just like out there chopping wood one day. He's fallen in love with this woman. And he's, he wants to like win her over, I guess. 
And uh, whoops, he accidentally chops his own leg off. But then he goes to like the ten, the ten salesman and has him make him a ten leg so that he can put it on and keep working, I guess. So he does that, goes out there, and then it, and then there's like some talk about maybe the Wicked Witch is, is influencing this, making like some, some bad stuff happen to him. But whoopsie-daisy, chops his other leg off. That's okay. I'll go right back and get another ten leg. You can see where this is going. Both arms gone. Um, then eventually uh, the head... Whoops, chopped my own head off. Um, but it's okay. Replaced with a tin head. And then sure enough, he splits his own body down the middle. <laughs> but uh, he's replaced with a tin body. And now he's 100% tin. Um, out there just chopping wood, I guess. He's the woodman. And then, um, but the problem comes is it rains on him and he rusts and he gets and he gets stuck. What's the thought experiment with the boat and you replace oh, the yeah. parts? Oh yeah, ship ship of Theseus. Yeah, Theseus. Is he so, still? Yeah, <laughs> is he still? Is he still the same replace guy? Replace all his parts. And it's a good question. Um, yeah, it doesn't really get into that, but that's a fascinating question. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, pretty it, pretty uh, clumsy to to knock off limbs that often. Just uh, keep chopping his own arms and legs and head. And, and, and yeah. uh, one of the fun things and that's super visual that I remember from the movie is the way that the Tin Man's like become rusted. And stuck yeah. in place and stuck out there, and the way that's that just the a little a bit of oil, yeah, I think it's great, and it's in the, it's in the book, and, and it's always fun when they come over and they start oiling him up, oiling him up, and he's yeah. he has this woman. His story is a backstory about a, a relationship that after he became fully ten, it was like they couldn't be together, and he wants he wishes he could like love this woman. He just feels like if he could love her again, then he would be happy, I guess. But he because he's a ten man now, he can't. Um, so there's this this sort of philosophical argument or discussion that breaks out between him and the scarecrow about what's better heart or brains. And it, it gets that going in the mind of the reader, right? As you're thinking about it, what's, what's more important. And then you meet the cowardly lion, which is another interesting character. So first off lion in the book is a lion. He, you know, and I always think of like the silly guy in a lion costume who looks kind of <laughs> ridiculous. What do you mean silly? <laughs> you mean expert s- special effects? Yeah, and I'm like, I, that was always what I pictured, right? But like, no, this is just just a lion, four legged, yeah. yeah, powerful beast, right? And um, the lion is cowardly and says so, but like, I thought it was interesting. It jumps out and like roars at Toto, and Dorothy slaps the lion, <laughs> and um, he's like, oh shit, uh, sorry, how you know? I'm sorry. Why'd you slap me? I'm just cowardly. He's afraid of everything. He was afraid of Toto. He apologizes. But then, of course, yeah, we see him being brave over and over again. So all of these characters are demonstrating the exact thing that they say they don't have from the jump. Um, the Tin Man, he says that he can't he can't bring himself to harm any living being. He steps on a beetle and starts crying and has to have like the oil applied because he's so distraught over having killed this bug. Um, and so I can see that Buddhist like thinking people are talking about in this book. Like that's pretty. I don't know, transgressive almost to have that in a children's book at the time. Cause that's almost like, you know, we shouldn't be harming animals, which had to be, a, you know, pretty controversial yeah. for a bunch of farmers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so how do we explain away the fact that later he's cutting heads off? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book kind of does <laughs> the book basically just says like, Oh, he can't bring himself to do this. But then like he has to, to protect Dorothy and he has to mm-hmm. protect the party and, I do love the idea of this tin man who it breaks his heart every time he does it, but he's just out there chopping the heads off of wolves 
and crying the whole time, but having to oil himself so he doesn't get rusted. So you're imagining like the the like slasher version of, of like, this character. It's that... like grim, dark fantasy hero, badass version of the Tin Man. <laughs> this is really tortured, just just but you know has to do it by his code of honor. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, there's they go through a lot of adventures here. Um, there's even a part where they have to jump over this ditch and they end up all climbing onto the to the lion's back. There's these things called, I think, like kaleidas or something. I, I, I didn't know how to spell it. Um, but they have the bodies of bears and the heads of tigers. I'm and not familiar with that creature, did he? Me, he I never heard that. of it either. Maybe he just invented it. Um, but the lion, like, gets in their way and is like, I'll fend him off and you guys escape if it's the last thing I do. Like, clearly demonstrating a lot of bravery, even though he's, you know, purports to not have any. Um, and then I thought this was the point where I was like, I have to talk about Anne Hathaway. Because there's this moment where the scarecrow gets stuck in the river i love this part this is my this is super memorable also not from the movie yeah not from the movie and um the stork comes along and they have to talk to the stork and the stork agrees to go save the scarecrow she gives the stork this super funny valley girl voice really that i a super valley girl it was so funny it was like right out of california almost out of the movie clueless and it's a stork yeah. and it was so hilarious um i really enjoyed that part uh, just a lot of good stuff. A lot of she did a lot of good work with her voices. Like some of them were clearly kind of evoking voices from the from the film, but other ones obviously are not in the film. So she was able to just kind of have her own fun with it. Yeah, no riverboat ride in the movie that didn't make the cut apparently. But I, I, I had a lot of fun with that. Like he he's sort of paddling the boat and then and then gets like propped up and scarecrow. He's scarecrow in the middle of a of a, of a river. You know what reminds me of that was pretty cool. House Moving Castle. Isn't there a yeah. moment where they're like going yeah. down a river and yes, yeah, got a scarecrow? Anyway, um, we got um, another adventure. So there's lots of adventures. That's the thing. You get just so many more adventures. Like uh, more things happen in this book than happened in the movie. Um, you get this poppy field. This this was in the movie. Zonks people out. Yeah. Um, zonks them all out, but then the, the lion gets left behind. And they're like, oh, I guess we can't save the lion. He's too heavy. But then the field mice show up, including the queen of the field mice gets saved i think by um toto no who saves the field field mouse they oh i think it's the woods woodsman maybe he like, kills a cat yeah i think he chops his head off <laughs> actually yeah, now that right, i remember because yeah. he said he just chops his head off because it's chasing a mouse um so yeah <laughs> okay i'm uh, just imagining too like you know the samurai like will like pull their sword and put it yeah. back together and they kill it that quickly before anybody can see it that's, that's what he's his doing move his, too he just axe. he just decapitates people that's yeah. what he does with that axe <laughs> <He's> just, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so he saves the queen and then she ends up summoning all these other little field mice to go and carry the, the lion out. Um, so just lots of fun. Like I, you said, it's in the movie. I actually don't really remember that. Are there field the, mice? Not the, that, not the mouse that, part. That, that part. Okay. I'll be interested to see like what all is there. They do finally reach the, reach the, um, city, uh, and they get these goggles and they, and, and as soon as they put the goggles on, everything is green. Everything's described as green and they're wearing these green goggles. So I'm like, is that why everything's green? Cause this isn't a thing in the movie, right? Like it's actually a green city and everything is yes. green, but yep. like here they're all wearing these goggles and it's even described that like little goggles are put on Toto, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> these little goggles on the dog. Yeah. Um, it's funny. What if it is like this sort of like, it's this wasteland and then they, they're like, look how magical the Emerald city is. Once you put these goggles on. Well, I mean, he says later, he's like, ah, nothing's really green here. No more, more, no more green than anywhere else. Yeah. So it is kind of all just this illusion by the, you know, the wizard, which we'll get to. So let's talk about that. So they, then they all get tasked. They all meet with the wizard individually. He appears in different forms. 
um, which is kind of interesting. Like one time he's ball of fire. One time he's just a woman. <laughs> you know, um, there's a couple of different things. Um, but he tells them all, you've got to kill the Wicked Witch of the West or I'm not doing anything for you. So the companions head to the land of the Winkies, ruled by the Wicked Witch of the West. The witch sends wolves, crows, bees, and armed Winkies to stop them, all to no avail. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Uh, they basically they get chopped apart yeah. by the woodsmen. Forty wolves get sent, and he beheads them all. Um, <laughs> I think he's literally chopped the heads off of all of them. Um, I forget how they. Like, I think the bees try and sting the Tin Man, and like their their stingers break, and then they die because they they can't have stingers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is this a is this a um, Sleepy Hollow thing? <laughs> is this like you know cutting the heads off? Yeah. What's the name? The Ichabod. The legend crane. of Sleepy Hollow. That yeah. we covered. Yeah. What's the what's the monster's name in that? Oh, uh, the headless horseman. The headless horseman. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Some some sort of uh, reference going on. He here met with... the he met the ten woodmans one one day and <laughs> that was it. <laughs> okay, so she the witch uses her golden cap to summon the winged monkeys. The winged monkeys destroy the scarecrow and the ten woodmen and cage the cowardly lion, but they bring Dorothy and Toto to the witch who enslaves Dorothy. The witch wants Dorothy's shoes, which she knows carry powerful magic. She contrives to make Dorothy trip and fall so she can grab one of the shoes. An angered Dorothy throws a bucket of water at the witch, who melts away to nothing. Dorothy frees the cowardly lion and engages the help of the now free Winkies in repairing and rebuilding the Tin Woodmen and the Scarecrow, and the friends return to Oz. So yeah, this was a pretty dark turn. This is your, like almost like black moment here. And it's really not, at the, I thought this was going to be like the very end of the novel, but there's another whole kind of act that happens after this. Yeah. But, um, yeah. They get captured, you know, scarecrows stuffings all pulled out. The woodman's like thrown in a ravine or something and like beaten up. I think this is the part that messed me up. Was yeah. The monkeys are the ones who are pulling that shit out of the scarecrow and stuff. <laughs> like it's terrifying. And and then they capture her and she's enslaved by the witch. And the, the, the lion is like kept in a cage and like not fed. Except for Dorothy's able to like sneak him food, and there's like a little while where she's actually there, like doing doing work for the Wicked Witch. Um, yeah. Can we talk about the the characters that are called Winkies, and where if we think this is like a chicken or egg scenario with the with the use of the word Winky? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is just like incredibly weird word, but I guess you could say the same about Munchkin and all the other yeah characters. Wink- I mean, Munchkin's types. more known, I think, I, uh, nowadays at least. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Or did all of these things come from, it must have come, I, I feel like Munchkin was a word he made up and is now part of popular culture, right? I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, they get rebuilt. Um, they're also all like blinged out and upgraded. Like the woodsman's got like a golden axe now, or it's got like a half that's axe is golden. And like cursed items. Yeah. Scarecrow has like a cool cane that he now walks, like a pimp cane he walks with now. <laughs> like they're, they get like blinged out with jewelry. Um, she keeps getting like little magic items. She's getting like she gets this whistle from the from the mice. She gets this golden cap now that she wears, where she the can ruby summon the silver slippers. Silver slippers. She can summon the the winged monkeys now three times. She's told. Uh, this is very fantasy D and D, right? Like they're getting their plus one weapons and they're. It's interesting. <laughs> they're... It's interesting how this all. You know, this is obviously before all of that, right? So it's like it's interesting that this is the thing. They're all in a party too, right? And they all have their own roles within the party. Yeah, you think of like Excalibur and stuff, though, right? It's always I think fantasy's always had magical items that are just the, the objects of power that people, you know, use. <laughs> okay, so let's finish this thing out. Let's finish out the plot. Oz does not summon them for several days, and when he does admit them into his presence, he seems reluctant to grant their wishes. Toto knocks over a screen, revealing that Oz is only a common man. 
However, he fills the scarecrow's head with, with bran and pins and needles, saying that they are brains, and he puts a silk and sawdust heart into the tin woodman, and he gives the cowardly lion a drink that he says is courage. He and Dorothy make a balloon to carry them out of the lands of, uh, land of Oz, but the balloon flies away before Dorothy can board. Oz leaves the scarecrow in charge of Emerald City. At the suggestion of a soldier, Dorothy and her friends go to seek the help of Glinda, the Witch of the South. They encounter several obstacles, but at last reach Glinda's castle. Glinda summons the winged monkeys so that they can take them and the ten woodmen back to rule the Winkies, and the Scarecrow back to the Emerald City, and the Cowardly Lion to the forest to be the king of the beasts. Then she tells Dorothy how to use her silver shoes to take her back to Kansas. Dorothy gathers up Toto, clicks her heels together three times, and says, Take me home to Aunt Em. She is transported back to the farm in Kansas. So this is that fourth act I was talking about. I was expecting all the stuff with the wizard. Like, that was pretty understandable. He reveals that he is from Toledo. And he's just this guy who's been living here a long time, fooling everybody. But then they're going to leave. She misses out on it. And then she's going to have to figure out another way back. They go on another whole damn journey. Um, they they have and they encounter some you know some stuff on the way. They have to cross over this like uh, porcelain wall through this porcelain wall and all these like porcelain little figurines that are uh, animated, and it's like tor- Toy Story Land there because they're basically Toy Story style figurines that when they're on a mantelpiece in somebody's house they can't move, but they're if, if only when they're in the, with this little town they're actual people, and they can walk about and like freely act. There's a movie that came out a bit ago called like Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah. And I think that might be based on material. I don't know. You have to tell I don't me, know but... the details of it. I know that I think I read that Frank Baum is the name of the main one of the main characters, but it's not supposed to actually be him. It's just an homage to okay. him. And I think in that movie, they do some of this porcelain stuff. And they I think some of the stuff they got left out is added in other movies. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm interested in the, the, cause I want to say there's another story that people love and, and recommend within this universe. And then there's also Probably. like Wicked, which is a, you know, a musical that yeah. everybody loves. Well, and- I was going to say, we have opened ourselves up now by opening this door to a lot of potential bonus episodes. One of the ones is I know there's some sort of batshit, like drug fueled, bizarro sequel to the Wizard of Oz that people talk about. At least that's the reputation it seems to have. Is that a, a novel or a, a movie? Movie, okay. And it's supposedly like one of the weirdest fucking movies there is. And I've been wanting to watch it for a long time. And I'm excited because now that could potentially just be a bonus episode for us. We could watch it together, <laughs> which would be cool. Um, but yeah, they also like, uh, they have to kill this spider. They basically fight Shelob. And although yeah. it's really easy because the, 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 Lion just sneaks up on it while it's asleep and chops its like head off with his claw. It was almost weird because it was like Bomb added this whole other act, but then kind of knew that there wasn't really time. Like we're at the end of the book. Clearly now we need to hurry this thing up. So like you can't really spend a lot of time fighting this big spider you've introduced. So we just kill it right yeah. real fast. There's this interesting thing too that that kind of feels a little shoehorned in with the party all becoming leaders of different factions of Oz. I didn't really understand where I, I didn't get the the motivation to see, say like oh the why would the scarecrow even want to rule the Emerald City? They're all rulers, man. Everybody becomes a king at the end of this, which I thought was very un-American in some ways. I was surprised at the level of just like you know to end a book now. Scarecrow becomes the ruler of the Emerald City. Um, the lion becomes the king of the forest, 
and uh, the Tin Man becomes the leader of the Winkies. I think it was King of the Winkies. Uh, yeah, yeah, King of the Winkies. They're all kings. They're all rulers. I want to take the line that you said uh, a minute ago out of context and just like put that as like the banner for this <laughs> like King of this the episode and be like Luke says that that Wizard of Oz is un-American or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the rulership at the end, at least, seems a little bit to me like where's the democracy? That's our uh, that's our clickbait viral marketing there. That's how you get people. Yeah, I guess it's just easier for for a kids book to be like, all right, so these good people they who I win. like are now in charge. So that means the it's good. It's like good for the place that there's a good person in charge, which is a very reductionist way of looking at something, but okay. Dorothy's asked to be a part. Like they, they basically say like, you can stay with us. You can stay with any of us. And she doesn't want to, she wants to get back home. And so that's one of the other sort of, uh, more moral tales that are going on in here. And it's like that obviously there's no place like home is such a big line in the film. And that's, I think that's part of it too, is like the sense of belonging. And Although finding... there's no place like home is not what she says here at the end. No, not here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that that idea of uh, finding a place to belong, and I think Frank uh, probably wanted each character to have a place to belong. I thought it was interesting that like Dorothy was just like, I really want to go home. She's like, <laughs> they're like, you know, where do you want to go? She's like, I just don't like, I just, I'm not. I'm not liking this. Like, yeah, it's a great, it's a great fantasy world and everything. Like there's talking animals. I'm basically hero worshiped here. You're all great. But I really want to go back to Kansas where everything was described as just being gray and boring and sad. Like her, her aunt M and, and her uncle are, were described as being like sad people um, early on. Um, so the idea of her going back actually doesn't sound that happy to me, but she seems that's, uh, that's all she wants, you know, right. Uh, is to go back to Kansas. Yay. <laughs> Our Kansas listeners are pissed right now. Can I just stay in Oz? <laughs> um, I think, you know, Bomb realized that in the end, I guess, as he was dreaming about going across the shifting sands. So, yeah, this is the end of the book. You know, we get Glenda, the witch. Um, we get a whole nother place. We get another color theory, I think, right? Listen, she's, she's got her own colors going on. Mm-hmm. Um, red, right? I think. Yeah, she's wearing. You're right. She's wearing lots of red and ruby. Yeah. So, which I guess that's where the ruby slippers come from in the movie, kind Possibly. of. Um, they borrow that from here. There is some. I've read some talk about how like all this silver and gold stuff may have been like direct political references because there were these like politics around rare metals at the time. There's like a gold rush was going on. I, I don't. I okay. couldn't dig into all of what it meant, but like people were theorizing that maybe it could have meant that. And this is the kind of stuff he would always back away from when people brought it up, but it doesn't mean it's not there. He just didn't want to lean into it and have it become a story that they were like, Oh, this is what this is. You know what I mean? Like he it's said what it's that. about. Yeah. yeah. I did find myself thinking a lot about, you know, you get your, your Tolkien and then you get the Silmarillion and, and the, the, the explaining how all of these parts come together and everything. And I started thinking about the witches a lot. And like, so when a witch dies, does another witch, uh, is another witch born one day that becomes the witch of that area? There's four witches. Is there an election? They're each in the cardinal directions. Yeah. Uh, And Dorothy comes in and kills one by accident and kills another one. So she kills both of the wicked witches. Um, I guess there are no more wicked witches now. She's killed them both. Why? I wanted to ask you, why are North and South witches good and East and West witches are evil? Do you think there's anything there or is it just arbitrary? That's really interesting. There's probably something really deep analytical way of <laughs> digging into this. Yeah. Oh, so, man. I was thinking about the Civil Civil War, North and South, but those are both okay. good. Well, I mean, like the West sort of being untamed. Yeah, in America at the time, maybe. It was starting to be, though. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah, this in 1900. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, there were people out there. It was just it sure. was just, there was just still a lot going on with it. I don't know because yeah. this was after the Civil War. Yes, it's a weird time in America. <laughs> I'm trying to like yeah. imagine it, you know, because um, it feels so old fashioned, yet it wasn't that old fashioned. Like there was this was the dawn of a lot. Like the cars were starting to become a thing, you know, like. You know, the Wright brothers were about to take their first flight. <laughs> that kind of stuff is going sure. on. I mean, the Industrial Revolution was definitely in full swing. You had cars. Telegraphs are starting to happen. Uh, telegrams or whatever are starting to be a thing. Railroads all over the place. I'm sure. Yeah, they're still. Yeah. I think they were probably all the way across at that point, I imagine. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating, fascinating book, right? And from a fascinating guy, um, really unfortunate that he had such racist views towards Native Americans. Um, but also like at the same time, I'm, I'm happy that he's got like feminists and Buddhist and like all this interesting stuff in the book that from the 1900s, I was not expecting. Now I'm not saying there's a ton of feminist stuff in here. I don't think that's really safe to say, but there wasn't a lot of stuff that really rubbed me the wrong way. I'll, I'll say that much. Like I felt like mostly fine. Um, and I was expecting more of that, you know, I was like, Oh, what's this going to be like? Um, so it's, it's an interesting one. I think, uh, People are flawed, and unfortunately, sometimes very much so. Um, but it, I think it's still fascinating to talk about, especially when it's something that's already this ingrained into American culture. I think it's interesting to look at, right? And, and I think a lot of people forget about the book. They look at this as this movie, and like yeah. they don't even know it's a book. They don't care that I it's didn't a book. Know. They don't know about this author who who invented Oz and it was his whole life, clearly, um, and was famous for it. Yeah. Do you think – and I don't – feel like it's pretty irrefutable at this point but this this story will go on to continue to have the legacy that it's already built right like this oz will 100 years from now 200 years from now are people still talking about this i mean it's such an important moment in film which i'm sure we'll get mm-hmm. into i just can't imagine there's not going to be many other opportunities for and it'll always have its place right like it'll it'll always yeah. be that that moment and that that thing. So um, this is just one of the most famous movies of all time. I think it's it's got to be right. And it's very interesting that it's seemingly extremely successful book gets gets overlooked yeah. just because of the magnitude just and the size how of huge what the movie this film is. did. Yeah. yeah, which that's a great segue, man. We're going to have to cover that one next week. There's going to be a lot to get into. Um, if you enjoyed our coverage and you are happy about season seven starting off, um, a great gift to us to start out the season would be a rating and review of whatever you chose to listen. If you see us on YouTube, give the video a like and subscribe. Um, all that good stuff um, helps get the word out. Tell a friend. Um, you know, this is going to be a, a fun season. I'm looking forward to it. I think there's going to be a lot of big ones that we're going to tackle that we've been meaning to tackle for a long time. So. Um, I'm excited, man. Also, make sure you're connecting with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All those at Ink to Film. We're on TikTok. And then also we want to shout out more often our Discord. Yeah. We're going to try to start doing some more stuff on Discord and uh, chatting over there. has been a lot of fun with our with our diehard We talked listeners. about maybe doing some gaming on there, something James and I have discussed, maybe streaming some games and just like you can come hang out with us and talk with us. I mean, there's and... a possibility that we play games with listeners on there and stuff too. So Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how it works but i'm sure i'm sure there are ways to do that and jackbox is something you can do like 
Um, I'm sure we could find ways to do that. I think that'd be cool. And the way to get on our Discord is going to have to be, you have to just let us know that you want to join it and then we'll send you a link because it is private. I don't want to make it a public thing because then just anybody can join. I want it to be people who actually listen. So, but that's all that it takes. Like just actually listen to the podcast, request a link, and then, you know, you're welcome to join us. Also, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, we have bonus episodes on there. Our most recent one we did is talking about my uh, journey querying my novel, which I just started doing this year, which is trying to get a literary agent for the novel. Um, I talk about my process with that, um, what the, you know, what that's going to be like. And I outline what um, other other aspiring writers uh, and authors can look to do uh, and, and, you know, what they might learn from the journey. That episode is on patreon.com slash ink to film. And we do bonus episodes there monthly that you can check out for as little as two dollars. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I'm excited to actually journey into the land of Oz and Technicolor and learn about all the terrible things, I think, that went on. I don't know. I've always heard it's like bad, like bad stuff. People died or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's there's I mean, there's the myth that there's like someone hanging in the background of a scene and stuff. There's so much. Yeah, we'll (laughs) dig into a lot of that. There's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of like things that were going on with the studio systems at the time. And, you know, Technicolor being (sighs) this sort of being one of the first films to really utilize that. Well, I'm excited. Tons to talk about. All right. Until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.